afternoon. <laughs> Can you hear me? I always start with this question and you say yes, but later it comes back to me that certain people have not heard me. And we really we make the utmost effort that that is not the case and we make a, an acoustical test from the middle of ground floor, from the back of the ground floor and from the balcony. And uh, really nobody has told me today that it was inaudible, so let's hope. Uh, we have reached the middle of our journey and we are on to the second part of our survey of this marvelous 32 masterpieces by Ludwig van Beethoven. Mm, they are very well divided into two halves. In the Henle edition, the first book ends with Opus 28, the Pastoral Sonata, and Opus 31, number one, that I just played the beginning of, starts the second book. In 1801, after he had finished the Pastoral Sonata, Opus 28, Beethoven remarked to a Czech violin virtuoso, Werner Krumpholz, that it's time to look for new territories, new ways of writing for the piano. He is not happy with what he had done so far. This is very self-critical indeed, because I don't see how you could find anything wrong with the first 16 sonatas. <laughs> and especially if you remember the last program that I played, the Opus 26 sonata, starting with the variations. And the two magnificent sonatas, Opus 27, called Sonata Quasi Una Fantasia. These have certainly been very new attempts of Beethoven to, to try new forms and, and new directions. So he is very, very severe to himself indeed. And yet, Beethoven is such a revolutionary and such a revolutionary composer, always going into new directions and never repeating himself. Actually, I'm beginning to repeat myself now. <laughs> but, well, you must forgive me, I'm not a man of words. And nor was he. So, what is new here? On the surface, on Opus 26 and Opus 27 have been incredible achievements. And not a lot of time has passed by since, only, only a year or two. Um, his health has deteriorated considerably, and this is the time of the famous Heiligenstadt Testament, which you all know very well. This is one of the most moving documents where he confesses to 
fellow human beings how he's suffering from increasing deafness. And Opus 31 comes right after another trio of compositions. Opus 30 are three sonatas written for piano and violin. And with Opus 31, we get another trio of compositions. And it is for the last time. Um, if we look back to the beginning of this cycle, when we started with Opus 2, there were three sonatas under one opus number. Then, a few years later, we had the Opus 10 sonatas. Again, three compositions under one opus number. And now it is for the very last time. So it is a rückblick in German, looking backwards. Uh, sometimes this is for practical reasons, because the publisher could sell the compositions better. Beethoven was a very pragmatic composer in the best sense of the word. He had to make a living. And uh, so the publisher, which was a Swiss publisher, this time Negeli in Zurich, and he suggested to Beethoven to, to write three sonatas, not just one. Like in Opus 2 and Opus 10, we have a group of pieces that are entirely different. They show three completely uh, different faces of the composer. The first sonata, G major, is the funniest Beethoven sonata there is. Uh, it's, you don't have to uh, explain it. Luckily enough, after Alfred Brendel's marvelous essay, does classical music always have to be entirely serious, uh, which is very well known in this country, and not just in this country. Um, so thanks to, to this essay and thanks to Beethoven's great predecessor and teacher, Joseph Haydn, we know that there is humor in classical music. It's just unfortunate that some people don't react to it. Uh, and especially on the continent in German-speaking countries. <laughs> In... No, I, I don't mean this critically, and anyway, <laughs> let's realize the war is over. So. <laughs> but still there is this attitude that a classical concert is a very, very serious uh, event, and you are not even supposed to smile, let alone laugh. Now, Haydn's and Beethoven's humor is, is, is very sophisticated humor. It's not cheap, ha-ha kind of burlesque humor. Uh, in this G major sonata, the jokes are sometimes very obvious and sometimes very subtle. We will get to that later. Uh, in the beginning, it's obvious that... What's the matter with you? Can't you get your two hands together? <laughs> because there's this, what is referred to as old-fashioned piano playing today, which is 19th century 
playing. I don't call it old-fashioned. I think it's, it's very beautiful when somebody like Corto plays a Chopin nocturne. So always the left hand a hair of a second before the right hand. But it's, I don't call it a mannerism. It's, uh, it's the physics of sound. I mean, you also, uh, when you listen to, to the Vienna Philharmonic or a really great orchestra, the double basses always play before the violins because it's not, in music before Stravinsky, a chord is not supposed to be together like cut with a razor blade. And today, always critics have to refer to this old-fashioned piano playing that the left hand comes before the right hand. Of course it comes before the right hand because that's the musical way of playing. It's not, not Petrushka. From Petrushka on, life is different. <laughs> uh, but in this Beethoven sonata, it's the other way around. The right hand comes before the left hand. is incredibly funny because <laughs> I think so <laughs> isn't it <laughs> because it's consistently this this not togetherness and it's 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 uh, upside down so it's not the left hand before the right hand but the other way around now when we, we listen to this phrase which is a very virtuoso flourish. It's actually just the G major triad from upside down and but it's a it's a virtuoso flourish. We are we are talking about three very virtuoso sonatas. It's um, again not really meant for the amateurs. Amateurs are welcome to play it, but it's very difficult. So. And then what happens? That will not come. But he transposes this first phrase a whole tone down. Um, this is a very interesting device that I will come later in this program to this sonata. And then what happens? This seems like a new idea, but we have it already two years earlier in this sonata. Still only on the dominant. 
And again, he comes back to the tonic. Um, extroverted, virtuoso, out, outward going music, and uh, full of these, these flourishes, and dynamically huge contrasts between pianissimo and forte. We have not reached the fortissimo yet, but that will also come. So the dynamic spectrum of the piano sonata has grown, has increased, because uh, in earlier sonatas we, we seldom have these textures and these dynamic extremes. And then let's go in. second subject or second theme in a completely different character and different meter, very dancey, very uh, folkloric. It's like a street song. Uh, with this characteristic syncopations. And then he takes it to the bass and in the minor key. And this constant change between the major and the minor, which is a few years or decades later, we find this very often in the music of Franz Schubert, who must have known and loved these sonatas very much. He must have known them intimately. And this, this kind of... Uh, So changing minor and major and between forte and piano and pianissimo. This is very Schubertian. And then this was the end of the exposition. The exposition is repeated and I urge everybody to play all the repeats of Beethoven because especially from now on it's quite obvious when he wants a repeat to be observed and when there is no repeat. So this is not up to us mortal performers to be more clever. Let's just trust the composer. Also, development section, and he still keeps this syncopation and this uh, uh, untogetherness. Mm -hmm. 
as opposed to the untogetherness, then he'll write these huge passages in unison, very virtuoso, and modulating always a tone up. So if we were in, in B flat major, then C minor, and then in D major, and D means the dominant of, of the tonic. We are in a G major sonata. So I continue. Sandy, he's insistent, always puts a sforzander on the, on the unaccented part of the bar. Mozart, for example, never does that. And again, when we perform Beethoven, we have to take this sforzandi and these accents that seriously. I think it's, it's, there is nothing worse than when a performer tries to iron out these edges when the composer writes it. So it's, it's, it's supposed to be not beautiful here. <laughs> so we are on the long dominant pedal point and we do not have the autograph of this sonata, which is, a, which is a big loss. It's lost. But we do have the one of the previous sonata, and we do have the Waldstein sonata. And those sonatas are full of pedal marks by Beethoven. And I'm quite sure that he wants a very long pedal here. All the harmony must swim together. not just the dominant sevens, but the ninths added. And still this syncopation. And then, this is also very funny because it's very di dissonant, this, the D against the E flat. We are back. And against that cloud of pedal, we have now a very dry texture. So, Beethoven's sonatas are about conflicts and, and about uh, constant contrasts. Now, the dry against the juicy. So, that's about the the essence of this first movement. We'd, we still have a very funny coda, which I just play for you. Again, one of the jokes is when, when you 
when you fool an audience, of course you are not fooled because you are very intelligent <laughs> and you know the music, but imagine a first performance when, when you make a suggestion that the piece is over and that it's, it's not over because there's a... And this is a very subtle and sophisticated humor. The second movement is, according to Alfred Brendel, and I couldn't agree with him more, is a parody of Italian opera. But there are those colleagues of ours who, who are mortally offended by this suggestion, and they think this is one of the most, most profound utterances of, of Beethoven. I, I think they, they really don't get the point. Mm. Now, what is this thing about Italian opera? We all love Italian opera, and it's very popular today, bel canto, and it was also very popular in Beethoven's day. Some Italian opera is better than other. <laughs> uh, none of it is as good as Beethoven, if I may say so. And this really irritated Beethoven, the success of good and not so good Italian composers, his contemporaries, who were much more successful than he was. And so he writes a movement which is totally uncharacteristic of himself, because it is not economical, it's incredibly long, Everything is too much, everything is too, too much ornamented. And uh, so that's why we feel that it, it, is a, it is a parody, because at this part of Beethoven's life, um, he's going through a process of being more economical and more concentrated. We will see that in the D minor sonata, the so-called Tempest Sonata which is the next piece. Uh, so he deliberately wants to show the opposite. He wants to show what he does not want to be. He starts immediately with an accompaniment, which is a typical Italian accompaniment. What we call the mzazza, mzazza. Well, it's, it's anachronistic. <laughs> Sorry. I adore Verdi, I must say. If, if there is one composer that, that is a great Italian composer, it's Giuseppe Verdi, but that is not the question here. But it's interesting... Um, when we talk about, if I transpose the Rigoletto Quartet, again much later, but listen to this theme of Beethoven's Opus 31, 
number one. It's not so dissimilar. It's very beautiful, but it, I think you can feel this. Maybe it's also the way I feel it, and I try to play it that way. But there is some some irony in it, some something sarcastic. Uh, then, like a love duet, the theme goes to the bass, and this is again comic. It's like like a, a bass who is a very f- fat man trying to be very graceful, like Falstaff. But uh, and these cadenzas, which are, they are show of cadenzas, and Beethoven is really not a show. So this is trying to make fun of his contemporaries who are who are trying to make make a cheap effect. He never would write a cadenza like this. And then comes Bel Canto. A singer has a, a huge leap. It's very, very operatic, very, very vocal. Um, but then, in this very long movement, there are very pro- profound moments because Beethoven cannot really jump out of his own skin. For example. Modulations and harmonies, you can look in vain for these in Italian opera. And uh, that is the, the combination of this. So um, then another big cadenza. Now comes another show off. Beautiful, but it's uh, it's alien to to Beethoven's nature. Now we come to the after this first section, 
we heard it in a variation form. And now comes the middle part of the sonata. Uh, this is rather sinister and dramatic, but I would call it a storm in a teacup. It's not the real storm will come in the next sonata. sharp accents and it seems like a big drama is happening but it's really just a mini drama it's all in in parentheses and then when i stop we, we reached again the dominant of this movement and to show that it's a parody beethoven stays for 12 whole measures on this dominant and it's a slow movement and it's, it seems like eternity like nothing is happening for three minutes and again I think he's making fun of, of Italians when, when there is nothing happening but they, they, they pretend that something is happening uh, after this comes the last variation of the this a new this semiquaver accompaniment we also know this from Italian operas and uh, it's very tricky to play and it's not really pianistic at all. So, this is, apart from the Hammer Clavier Sonatas Adagio, the longest Beethoven slow movement. Uh, and it's deliberately long. Uh, after this comes an allegretto rondo finale, so not a really fast movement that starts again with a Gassenhauer type of theme. A Gassenhauer is a, a Viennese street song, something that anybody could whistle. Uh, as you can hear, 
It starts with an upbeat. I hope I played clear enough because that would be very bad if I didn't. So, yeah. Like in a, in a gavotte of Bach. The, the, the part writing and the leading of the parts is like string quartet writing. Um, the whole form and shape of this final rondo again found its successor in one of Schubert's great movements, uh, the last movement of the great A major sonata. It's not similar at all, and this doesn't start with an upbeat. But you will see later that first the theme comes in the soprano, then, then in the bass, then comes a counterpoint in triplets, in Beethoven. we have the same triplet movement. So, then comes a very interesting section. The theme is in the bass and it's in a minor key. Reminiscent of, of a Bach fugato. Look how the imitations are coming. And we reached the median, the E flat major. Um, so I don't want to go into all the details because we have a lot more to talk about. Uh, the coda is very interesting again. He stops on a 6-4 chord and like in Mozart's wonderful quintet for piano and winds, K452, there is a composed cadenza, cadenza in tempo. And But it's not finished <laughs> again. So when you hear this, which is the opening phrase, 
would like to think that it's finished, but it's not. This is in Adagio tempo. Now back to the tempo primo. In a deceptive cadence. Fragmentary treatment. Then the bass starts to live alone in the crescendo. Now presto! So it goes. So it mirrors the, the end of the first movement. And at last, those two hands, they have found each other. <laughs> <laughs> 